RadioInfluence.com. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Dark to Light podcast with Frankie Pal on the drums and Beans. So we had a nice long break. We're back in the saddle and we are honored to be joined today by Garrett O'Boyle, one of the suspendables, an FBI whistleblower who just appeared in front of the weaponization committee uh, two weeks ago now, Garrett? Yep, that's, yeah, about two weeks. Yeah. It's all blending together at this point. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to play a quick clip for you guys of the last thing that, uh, I think the most chilling thing that Garrett said in that hearing even if that means sacrificing my life. I've lived that oath out. That's your opening statement. That's not what I meant. It was this. <laughs> you, your, your interaction with Mr. Gates and how all of this occurred and all of the hardships you've gone through. If one of your really good friends, your former colleagues, came to you and said, I have this thing that is being covered up and I think the American people know to, know, need to know about it, what advice would you give them? I would tell them first to pray about it long and hard. And I would tell them I could take it to Congress for them or I could put them in touch with Congress, but I would advise them not to do it. So you would legitimately try to protect one of your colleagues from doing what you have done? Absolutely. And how do you think that solves being able to shine light on corruption, weaponization, any kind of misconduct that exists with the American people? It doesn't solve it. But the FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. And we are all examples of that. I can't think of a more sobering way to end a hearing. I yield back. And that is very true. So Garrett, I'm just going to give you the floor. Can you explain your story for people who may not have heard it yet and um, what has happened? Yeah, so... Uh, first, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate being here. And um, I'm just going to touch on that clip you played because uh, there's been some feedback that I've seen where people are like, you know, how could he say something like that? You know, it's never going to get fixed. But I, I would say to those people, actually listen to what I said. Listen to the actual words that came out of my mouth. I would uh, do what I said in that clip to cover and protect other people in the agency because I don't want them to have a similar fate as I have had and others, Kyle, Steve, and others that we know of too who aren't public, Marcus. And it's not because I don't want the problems to get fixed. If that was the case, I never would have become a whistleblower myself. But uh, the congressman asked me if one of my really good friends came to me with something like that. Not only would I cover for one of my really good friends or help them try to do it properly or whatever, I would do that for someone in the agency that I've never even known. And thankfully, because um, we kind of have started to build a little community, there are people who are already reaching out and saying, hey, I see the same things or even former employees or retired employees, I saw the same things. What can I do? Uh, because there are other people out there who want to come forward too, because they know the truth of what we have testified to and the truth of the retaliation that we faced. So to the people who think that somehow that comment I made at the end was was incorrect or inaccurate, they have to take a, a they have to take in the full scope of what the FBI has done to me and others, and then also the level of the weaponization and corruption that that has infested infected that agency so um but yeah so anyways i guess i'll rewind a little bit um you can probably tell from my accent that i come from the great north and i was born and raised in milwaukee wisconsin and uh 9 11 really probably the the starting point that put me on this career uh, in government or career of service or whatever you want to call it and uh, i was a freshman in high school then i vividly remember it i'm sure just about everybody who was alive then does. But um, uh, it, it was really then where I was like, what What could I do? What, what can I do? I mean, I was just a teenager, a kid. But as I approached the end of high school, I thought, you know what? I think, I think I'm going to enlist in the military because um, I, 
kept coming back to this point where I was like, if I don't do it when I'm 40, am I going to regret it? And every time I asked myself that, the answer was yes. And uh, it probably helped that my best friend uh, growing up, he enlisted as well, uh, short, or probably, I don't know, six months to a year before I did. And then, uh, and then I ended up doing that too. And um, I enlisted in the infantry. And uh, I remember when I took my ASVAB, uh, when when my recruiter came and picked me up and looked at my score, he was like, dude, you can do any job you want because I scored, I did pretty well on that test. And uh, he was like, even the ones I told you that weren't available, you can do those. And do you still want to go in the infantry? And I'm like, yeah, like I, I didn't care about that. My whole intention and plan the whole time was to join the infantry because in my mind, especially when your nation is in a time of war, I will, if I got to pick, I would pick to be one of the actual war fighters. And, you know, I, I understand that a military needs all the other support positions and you need cooks and logistics people. So the people in the infantry can get bullets and food and water. Like I get that. I'm not trying to, trying to bash uh, any, anybody who wasn't in the infantry, but um, for me, for my decision-making, uh, process it it had to be it had to be combat arms it had to be infantry if i had the choice and so that's what i did and then uh, i did that for about six years and deployed to iraq for a year um my first duty station was fort wainwright alaska which was interesting i ended up really liking it up there uh after the first after the first summer initially it was it was horrible i didn't think any any place could get worse than wisconsin but <laughs> at first alaska was <laughs> was far worse and uh, but I ended up really loving it up there I still have a couple friends up there um I don't know if I'll ever go back anytime soon but it's a great place and then um when I was in Iraq I re-enlisted uh to transfer to Fort Campbell Kentucky which is the home of the 101st Airborne Division and oddly enough when I was uh after I'd re-enlisted still in Iraq I get my orders for my new unit and I'm reading the book Band of Brothers, uh, and if you've ever seen the HBO miniseries, that's about um, the Second Battalion, Five Hundred Sixth Infantry Division. Yep. And so I get my orders, and then fast forward, I don't know, another year or so, roughly, uh, I, and I end up, you know, coming home from Iraq, and I'm in Alaska a few more months, and then I report to Kentucky. Once I get to Fort Campbell. Um, and they assigned me to my unit. I end up getting assigned to the second battalion, second, uh, infantry battalion, 506 infantry regiment. And, um, I actually was, uh, in the original easy company, like, uh, I'm like a legacy, uh, easy company guy. And, uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, I would say me and everybody in my unit, uh, we don't hold a candle to those, uh, greatest generation guys, but it's kind of a cool, like just a little piece of history that, uh, I'm, I'm proud of. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm there for, I don't know, actually like my first day, I think they were like, Hey, we're deploying like soon. And we're, we're going to, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, like next week. So, uh, you can have five days off, uh, so you can find a place to live. And then, uh, and then we have to go to Louisiana for a month and I'm like, Oh, great. And so I ended up finding like some dumpy apartment in, in Oak Grove, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, I, I literally had been there for like seven days and then we go to Louisiana for a month and then I come back and we're, we're back in Kentucky for a couple months and then we deployed to Afghanistan for a year. And after Afghanistan, I knew I was getting out. I wasn't going to re-enlist again because I re-enlisted um, in Iraq, but uh, Afghanistan, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. Uh, Heidi and I were married by then. We got married while I was in between deployments and then, um, but she was still living up here. So we had a, an interesting start to our relationship. Even after I got back to um, Kentucky after Afghanistan, she was finishing up school. Then she had a job. I only had like 10, 11 months left. So it was lots of driving uh, from Wisconsin to Kentucky wow. or flying and then driving from Kentucky to Wisconsin. But you know what? I think all those things helped make us stronger because look at us now. And uh, we have, you know, four beautiful girls and we we're still married. You know, early on, there was a lawyer who, who asked me early on in the suspension, uh, I called him up one day and he goes, are you still, you still married? And I was <laughs> like, yeah. And he goes, okay. All right, good. Just making sure because 
you know, most of the time a wife, she'd just have left by now. And wow. I'm like, thanks. That's uh, that's not real encouraging, but you're probably right. Um, so yeah, so that's my army time. And then I get out of the army, move back to Wisconsin, go back to school. Um, and I get my associate's degree in criminal justice. I become a cop in Waukesha, Wisconsin. After I'm off field training and probation, I go back to school again to finish my bachelor's degree. And um, I uh, finished that up in Mar at Marquette University where I graduated cum laude. And right around when I was getting towards the end of uh, getting that degree, I'd been a cop like two years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. And then I thought, well, Heidi and I talked and I was like, you know, I've got, or once I graduate, I'll have everything I need to go federal. And like the FBI had always been like a pipe dream because I never thought, well, one, I never thought I'd get hired. And two, like, I never thought I'd have the right credentials or be the right type of person or whatever, you know, because you grow up and they, you know, they, we've all been fed this idea of the FBI that they're all, you know, the, the greatest people in the world and the, the best at everything. And there are some people that are like that, not, not many, but there are, there are some really exceptional people. And, but I thought, well, I could never, I could never make it, you know? And then, uh, but I thought if I don't ever apply, I'll never know. And so we agreed, uh, well, she told me later after, after I had made it through everything that she never thought I was going to. So that's why she agreed in the first place because, <laughs> um, she thought, well, yeah, cause she never wanted to move, you know, out of Wisconsin or whatever. And, and, uh, so she thought, well, you know, I'll just satisfy his ego because he's not going to make it anyways. And then, uh, and then I do. And then once, once you get that final email that says, congratulations, like you've made it all the way through, like, here's your Quantico date. Like, how do you turn it down at that point? So, um, we didn't. And then, uh, I, I, I shipped off to Quantico in July of 2018. And after training, I was assigned to the Kansas city division down in the Wichita resident agency. And you know what, here's a note, a, a little tidbit. I haven't, I haven't said, um, on anything yet. We sold our house in Wisconsin and Heidi got pregnant, like right before I left to Quantico, we were, she, her and, um, Gwen, uh, yeah, Heidi, Gwen and Iris lived with my in-laws the entire five plus months that I was in training because we, sold our house because the market was good. So we thought, oh, if we sell now, like this will be good. And so we did. So like oh, the whole thing is kind of, it's a burden, you know, like, and then the house we bought in Kansas, we never saw it in person. Ugh. We just had our realtor like do a zoom call with us because she's pregnant. I'm in Virginia. It's like, how are we going to orchestrate even go, excuse me, even going there to, um, to, to look at houses. So we didn't. And I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it ended up being a really nice house. We, we miss it. We, we would like to go back, but we can't. And, uh, and yeah, so yeah, we get assigned to Wichita and then I get assigned to the JTTF joint terrorism task force there. And I do that for about two years. I end up trying out for SWAT and I get selected for that. And shortly after that is when I started, um, well, maybe like a year, I don't know. I would have to like, make a calendar and look at a timeline. But after I'm on SWAT for a while, I is when I start doing like official protected disclosures to Congress. And then um, while so, that is going on and, you know. Was that your first like gig with the FBI was, was what exposed you to what you disclosed about? Basically your first, like how meant, how long was it before you realized things weren't on the up and up? Was it right away? It was almost right away. Wow. Uh, it was in that first year. But it was, you know, retrospect, retrospect, it's at the time I was like, hmm, some of this stuff seems weird or or off. Or maybe it's just um, a personality quirk or a character trait that I can overlook about this supervisor or that agent or or whatever the case may be. But once I started um, whistleblowing, some of that stuff that stood that stood out originally i was like you know what this is probably worth bringing up too because there is that same reasonable belief that there's wrongdoing going on here and so some of that stuff i ended up bringing up as well um but yeah probably like my first 
probably within my first six months, six to eight months, there was, um, uh, let me think about it. So I had this case and it was a pretty busy case, pretty, um, in the FBI, it was ranked like relatively high in the domestic, they had like a whole ranking system, um, of case importance. And so we're doing these conference calls all the time and, and whatever. And the way the case was going, I was like, I think we probably need to try to get a wiretap on one of the subjects because uh, we weren't, and I won't get into all the minutia. So I, I, me and my co-case agent and then another um, case agent from a different field office, because we're all working on this together because it spanned, there was a subject in Kansas and a subject in Texas. So we're all working together, putting together this, this affidavit for a, a wiretap, which is a very um, extreme measure. And uh, that's why you need to get a warrant for it. It's just, and uh, in the FBI, it's considered a sophisticated technique, which that comes into play with one of Steve's protected disclosures and uh, just a general you know, information about the FBI and how they work. So sophisticated techniques are highly sought after by those seeking to promote and especially by like an SAC or executive management, because that helps them get that good monetary bonus at the end of the year if they get a, a high amount of those sophisticated techniques. So a FISA and a Title III wiretap are the, uh, they're the top. They're the top of the, of the food chain when it comes to techniques. And so when a, a case gets a Title III or a FISA, like it's kind of a big deal and it's very busy because you have to you have to sit on the wire 24 hours a day somebody does so there's it's a it's a very busy time and um but i think what the problem where the problem lies is instead of letting the case and the facts and the circumstances of the case dictate what type of investigative measures you seek to do there is oftentimes pressure from above to go for a wiretap or a FISA because it looks good. It helps the SAC get his bonus. Your boss can write about, because there, there's a form, it's a FD-954 and Federal Document 954. So in the FBI, your 954 is your internal resume. If you ever want to promote, uh, you have to submit your 954 to that new job. And if you're a supervisor of somebody like me or some other case agent who gets a title three on a case well then you as a supervisor can write about how while i was the supervisor in wichita i oversaw a title three wiretap because of how great i am mm. and it's like in actuality the boss doesn't have like anything to do with much of that and um so anyways um that was one of the things early on because we're working on, on writing this affidavit and uh, me and my co-case agent were in my boss's office and she's like, you guys, I need this title three. I need you guys to get this title three. And I was like, okay, like, that's what I'm working on. Like, you know, that's <laughs> part of why I'm, you know, like, that's why I am sick of doing all these conference calls all the time. Because if, if I stop getting pulled away to do silly things like that, to keep, you know, 75 to a hundred people in headquarters and other divisions, who have no real purpose learning about this case, then, um, then, then maybe I could have even been done with this affidavit by now. But we finish our conversation and we go out of her office and I think like, you know what, that was kind of weird, like how she said that. And so I said to my case, my co-case agent, I was like, hey, uh, what do you think she meant by that? And he just started laughing and he, he, he was a TFO, so he, wasn't an FBI employee, but he was sworn in um, under federal, you know, he had he had FBI creds and everything, but um, he had been a TFO for like seven years. And he goes, man, I know you were a cop before, but you got a lot to learn about the FBI. And I was like, hmm, okay. Can we go in the conference room and, and talk about that a little bit more? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we go in there. And then that this was the first time where I learned that an SAC gets a bonus and how me getting a title three makes everybody else happy because then they can write to it or then they can mark it off for the year because every field office will have a metric and it'll be like how many title threes do you need to get this year to be like 
superb or, or, or whatever. So they decide all of these things before in the beginning of the fiscal year. And it's like, how do you know you're going to get five title threes this year? You don't, but they pick an arbitrary number or they pick a number based off of previous years. And then um, they decide on how many they're going to do. So then that's why they push for, uh, for for getting a you know a title three or or a FISA or something like that. So it's up to you to basically find somebody that you can successfully write an affidavit on for a warrant to get a title three, even if maybe they don't require one, just to hit the quota. Yes, I I, I think so. I I would hope that most case agents don't look at it that way, but there certainly is that pressure from above, and then. You know, there's certain if if, a, if an SAC or somebody catches wind of a of a case that might have that potential, it they why would they not try to push for that sophisticated technique? Because in their mind, they're not really thinking um, about the case and what the case requires. They're thinking, "Ooh, if I could get that Title Three, that would really help my numbers this year." Yeah. So of course they're going to say, "Hey, uh, have you have you thought about you know trying to get a Title Three? And it's like. Not every case needs that. Not every case requires that. And furthermore, a case agent shouldn't even look at it that way because they should be more concerned with the balancing act between enforcing the law and balancing people's rights. And when you tap somebody's phone, I mean, that's about as as intimate as a thing that law enforcement can do. And yeah, there are restrictions in place where like, if I know it's your wife or your husband, like that's privilege. So I'm supposed to stop listening. But when you have lawyers in the FBI removing information from an email so they can get a FISA renewal on a sitting president, why would I ever believe that case agents are doing the right thing when they're just listening to the wire? You know, like Mm -hmm. I hope they are, but they, based on the, the things we see from the FBI, it's probably not the case, so which we're, is unfortunate. We're in 2023 now. This is in 2018. What happens? What happens? Like, what else is there? What What was your disclosure that, that caused all this problem? Well, I don't know which one. I, I, I'm not sure which, like, which one stood out the most or who caught wind of what that I had been talking to Congress about. Because, of course, they won't release any information to me. Now, at the hearing, Jim Jordan brought up how uh, the the school board threat tag, mm. which that that was one of the things that I did whistleblow about to them. So I think he's probably right. And for all I know, he probably knows more about what's going on than I do. So he said something like, because you brought that stuff forward about the school board threat tag, they said, if we can get this guy, then, T- you know, we'll tell me about that. When did you realize that was happening? What was your thought process? Did you like say, holy crap? Like, how did it work? Yeah. So <clears throat> I realized it was happening in, I think, October of 21. It might have been November. Whenever it was originally um, brought to the public, which I think that was released by Congress back then from the whistleblowers who brought it forward originally. And my whole squad even including my okay even including my supervisor he straight up said to us we will not be going to school board meetings on this squad and it's like well big fbi says we will be we know steve friend did and was sitting in parking lots writing down license plate numbers so you can it's a guarantee that fbi agents across the country were doing that now I'm I'm glad and grateful that my boss knew that that was wrong, but if he would have got pressured from above, would he have actually stuck to what he told us? I would say the answer is probably no, because there were other things that happened that it was like, oh, you know, my boss, he seems to know what's right, but with a little bit of pressure, that it's not always the case. So the school board thing starts, you know, hits the media in late October, early November of 21. And, you know, it still gets brought up today. 
And a lot of that was because the FBI wasn't providing any information to Congress as part of their oversight uh, duties. So as a domestic terrorism agent, I'm privy to that threat tag because if you remember from the original um, email, both the criminal division and the counterterrorism division were on there. So, you know, I find some information about it and I'm like, oh, this is the, the this is exactly what Congress wanted. And I had been whistleblowing already by then. So I, I, I disclosed information about that to them um, because the FBI, as we are seeing again, they are not uh, compliant with Congress's oversight duties. So at this point, it, it's a rogue agency. So if people like me who are are privy to information that the American public need to know or that Congress needs to know, it's our we're duty bound to provide that information. And like, yeah, I get it. It's frightening and you don't want to give up your paycheck. Yeah, me either. I didn't either. I have four little girls and a wife. And um, I thought that being an FBI agent uh, was the pinnacle of my career and that I was going to retire from there. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, but at least I can, you know, the FBI likes to talk about fidelity, bravery, and integrity. And I would say, well, at least my integrity is intact because um, I don't think most most of theirs is, at least certainly not the upper echelons of leadership. I'll use my finger quotes um, in that agency. So I think, I, I, I imagine that the school board threat tag is the one that, and I mean, because I, I think Congressman Jordan was right. I think somebody found out about that and said, we got to destroy this guy because because that became such a hot button issue. But I, I don't know for sure. The FBI won't release any information uh, to me or my lawyers about um, the sham investigation that's going on regarding my security clearance. So I don't really know. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were telling the story very well in chronological order. Um, so you you realize with the with the warrants you've got a bad problem going on because people are striving to get seriously intrusive warrants on people just to hit quotas that's early right. in your career with the fbi pick it back up there i guess and tell tell us like what happened and how you were sent to be moved to a different division and what they did because that is just to me the most disgusting thing in the world i can't get over it right yeah so yeah, that's where the story gets pretty interesting because um, Jim Jordan's office told put it to me this way. They asked me, so they uh, Jen Moore, assistant director, she was subpoenaed and she was supposed to testify to Congress because she did a voluntary uh, interview and she didn't provide any real answers. So they subpoenaed her. She ends up missing so heading into that that date for when she got subpoenaed um the congressman's office called me and asked me some questions asked me if i would consent to them to use my name and information and story to ask her questions um and they said we think that your case is a particularly cruel one i don't i don't think i'll ever forget that phrasing particularly cruel because I think they're right. I think it was, especially considering how we just had a, a newborn baby. But um, and but Jen yeah, Moore so, loves uh, newborn babies. Jen Moore loves to talk about everybody's newborn babies. Garrett. Well, that's right. You saw it in those in her emails. <laughs> Jen Moore emails all about everybody's newborn babies and families, and puts pictures of them in her little emails. And but she doesn't think twice about destroying those families when uh, they have integrity and whistleblow against actions that the FBI is taking. Right. So this is just a theory, but this is, this is the type of steps these people will go to, to protect the FBI. She ends up not showing up for that subpoenaed um, interview. And in short order, we learn from people inside the FBI that Jen Moore is going to retire. And I believe her retirement just happened or is it's imminent any day so she's probably never going to have to even answer regarding that subpoena because she can simply say well i'm retired now i don't i don't have uh i don't have up-to-date information on that congressman and what i believe happened and I, i'm 
just based on my knowledge of the FBI, my experience in law enforcement, I would be shocked if this wasn't the case. FBI, big FBI comes to her and says, hey, hey, Jen, uh, you've had a good long career here. You, you're an assistant director. You know, they subpoenaed you. You're going to have to answer for some things that we've been doing. So why don't you take one for the team, retire, and we'll, we'll get you set up with a really nice cush job after, you know, we'll, because we've got all of our partners in big tech and media, and this is where FBI executive members go once they retire and they get a really nice salary on top of their retirement. And so she's going, she's set to sail off, you know, to wherever and uh, enjoy that retirement and never have to answer for any of these things. But back to my story. So in the spring of 2022, uh, it, I think it was May, May of 20, well, in April, there was a, a canvas sent out to all agents regarding a new unit that was being created in the Quantico, Virginia area. It was going to be a national asset. So the idea was you're going to be able to rapidly deploy to any field office to assist as needed and uh, with with our particular skill set. And this is like, I don't like to be cagey, but I, I think some of the information regarding that unit is classified. So I, that's why I don't ever say like more about it, mm -hmm. but because um, I'm not sure and I don't have access to that anymore. So I can't go back and look and be like, oh, that part's unclassified, that part's not or whatever. So you don't want to get yourself in that say, mess. I, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I was really looking forward to it, um, really excited about it. And again, like they love to smear me as a malcontent and a bad employee, but I had tried out for SWAT and I made that. And then this new unit, it wasn't like you could just show up there was a tryout process for that as well. Uh, so that I, I put in my intent to try out for that unit. And then the tryout occurred in May. I went to that and was selected uh, for that unit as well. I accepted those orders in June. Um, obviously, we knew Heidi was pregnant by then and that she was due in September. And so the new unit let me adjust my report date to the right by 30 days. So um, we sell our house in August. We move into this Airbnb for a few weeks because we're, you know, her doctor is in Kansas. What are we going to go head to Virginia where we didn't even have a house yet. So we stay in Virginia in this Airbnb and we knew like, okay, yeah, this is going to be um, a sacrifice. We've sacrificed for my job before we've sacrificed for this country before. Uh, we'll, we're going to try to just treat it as like a, an adventure uh, when this new baby comes into our life and so yeah, we're at this Airbnb and I go back to Virginia at the end of August for training for the new unit for like 10 days. And after training, like every day, just about, I'm going and looking at houses. I probably looked at 40 houses that week and or at the, uh, during that 10 days. And at the, the very last house I looked at, the night before I left was the house that we um, got an accepted offer on. And I mean, obviously that didn't work out, but I think I think sometimes God puts things in your path or, or gives you gives you things um, when you need them. And I think he knew we were at our limit because we were just about to have a new baby. I had been traveling a ton since May. And then uh, so I think I think he just allowed that to happen to give us some peace. And then it probably maybe to humble us a little bit, too, because we seriously thought like, oh, we could live here like the rest of my career because. It was a beautiful house, big enough for all of us, and we could afford it, which wasn't the case with many houses there. But um, but yeah, so you know, I come back to Kansas after that training and finding that house, and uh, Lucy's born like a week later. And then we stay in the Airbnb another week or so, and then head to Wisconsin. We're here for like a week. During that time, I coordinate with the new unit that I'm going to show up on Monday, September 26th. And th th this this one kind of this rubs me the wrong way because they obviously knew what was going to happen, and they let me drive all the way to Virginia alone on a Sunday to report on a Monday, knowing full well that they were going to suspend me. So I spent hundreds of dollars in gas and tolls between the round trip and hotel and all of that, and it's like you could have just told me like, hey. Uh, we actually need you to go to the Milwaukee field office to check your email because uh, we sent you something that's classified. And yeah, I get that that would have been a lie as well, but 
um, at least it would have saved some of the hardship of just that trip. And with a wife who just had care. a baby, like exactly. a newborn with three other care. kids, right? Three other little little girls yep. are home, and then your wife has a yep. newborn, <laughs> and then they make you drive yep. all the way there, leave her alone. I mean, Frank, you yep. remember what it was like just taking care of Aurora when she was a newborn. Imagine having three other little girls and you just had a baby a week ago and your husband has to leave. Yeah. And last night I had a dream that Lauren and I had a second child and the child was a looked like a dolphin. Oh. And I, I was wondering, what, at what point <laughs> in the development does the child does it start looking like a, a human? Oh, it's it, the dolphin is probably early on. Yeah, I know. But it, 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 it was it was like... Oh, you had it. Oh, that's weird. It was yeah. It was, it's, it's not. It's not a dream. I'll just. I'll just stay. I'll just stay back here. No, 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 Frank. I love you. Yeah, I, I love it. You bring some levity to the whole, the whole thing. I've been so, waiting. I've been waiting for my chance. Oh, you did. that was perfect. So you leave, and then you get there, and they basically suspend you. You have an offer on this new house. You have all your crap in in, in storage, right? All your yeah, household yeah. So, goods and. Yep. So when we sold our house in uh, Kansas, uh, it, it was summer, you know, that of summer hot, even in Wisconsin, it was hot then. So we uh, we had essentially summer clothes, maybe a hoodie for like the, the the girls. Maybe. I don't I don't even know if we did. I don't even know if we had like a pair of jeans because we thought by the time we get to Virginia, it's nice there in the fall, like for us where we would still be wearing t-shirts and shorts. So we packed pretty light because we knew we were going to be traveling from Kansas to Wisconsin to Virginia, et cetera. So when, when the movers came um, to Kansas, they've packed up everything and took it to Virginia. And that's where it was in storage when I got suspended. And then that's where they kept, kept it and held it. Uh, and we have the emails, we have them. Can you explain have, that to yeah. people? Cause that's the part that blows my mind. How did they get your storage? Because it's all, so the move, the whole transfer, all of that is coordinated through the FBI. So the moving company, they have like a person in the FBI that they work with to like coordinate all this. And then, uh, so whoever, you know, so they're talking to FBI people behind our backs and then calling us and saying, hey, the FBI is not releasing your goods. Eventually it got to a point where there was like multiple FBI people on the email chain, multiple people from the contracting company, a person from the moving, like, yeah. And, and almost right away we were like, Hey, uh, we need to get our stuff because we're not moving to Virginia now, but that's where all of our stuff is. And over and over the answer essentially was you can't, uh, you can't get it. And what the like, hell? Well, I know this is the government. This is what they do. They know they can do whatever they want. And so the, the contracting company was like, hey, uh, we're working. We're working on trying to get it, but uh, the FBI is not releasing it. And then eventually it's, uh, well, we'll ship it to you, but it's going to cost you $17,000. And we're <laughs> like, uh, no, they <laughs> no, we can, we're not doing that. I will come there and I'll get it. And then it was, no, you can't. You can't. No, you can't come. And then finally it was, okay, you can come, but only Garrett can come and this is your stuff yeah. i know it's crazy I, and so it's just part of the retaliation i firmly believe that because i don't know who high up in the fbi was making what decisions about it but they yeah they were simply not releasing it and saying you can't come get it and this goes even like i i know for a fact that an assistant director was involved to some degree because before we were able to even get our stuff I had a, a, a BS um, appellate phone call. So it was an internal process where they said, oh, yeah, you can appeal the, the, the decision we made. To keep that, all of your decision. family shit locked in a storage locker? Like a storage facility? Yeah. What? Yeah. This is your yeah. house, your whole house, all your furniture, your clothes, everything. They have it locked away and you, you can appeal to get it back? Yeah. So when did you get a lawyer involved? Please tell me right away. I did. Yeah. Oh. So I was lucky in that regard because I was staying at a hotel in Manassas, Virginia. And right after I got suspended, I mean, I was probably like in shock, but uh, I leave the FBI building and I just go to a gas station like half a block away and park and start making phone calls. And I, 
one after like the first or second phone call I made, somebody put me in touch with Empower Oversight, mm-hmm. which is run by a guy you know you know there. And uh, so Tristan Levitt, who testified with with me, he's one of their attorneys, uh, or he's like their president, I guess. I, I don't know something. Um, which that dude that dude knows his stuff when it comes to whistleblowing. But um, he came from Grassley back staff. then. It, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's where Jason came from too. So. Um, before Tristan was there, though, they had a different attorney um, who was, yeah. Anyways, that that thankfully Jason took me on and said we will because that I met with him in person that night, and he heard my whole story, and I told him you know even more detail than than we're getting to, and he was like, yeah, I'll take you on. So he he took me on and said I'll I'll cover seventy five percent of your attorneys. Uh, fees to start and then we'll we'll figure it out from there and then um i i was going through them until early to mid-november when i got put in touch with the banal law group and then they took me on which has been just a tremendous blessing and uh, unbelievable really they are good people but yeah so yeah they are they are and it's like you know i it's not lost on me the type of clients uh, that they have and that they typically have and for them to take on somebody like me um it's just really humbling because it's like i'm nobody man i'm just a simple wisconsiner you know simple cheesehead and not, not really actually and then for them to do it <laughs> not really <laughs> um, no um, seriously but but it, you did you've been whistleblowing you were whistleblowing on crap for years that I, I mean i don't think we even scratched the surface with you at nine it, You've been doing this no, for years. Yeah, we, we haven't. Amazing. I mean, that's, so I had no it was, idea. Um, yeah, it was just about a year, though, where I had been going to Congress because knowing what I know now uh, about whistleblower law, I ha- I did make protected disclosures to my chain of command. And some of them I was very clear about because I would bring uh, case law to them or statute or whatever. Um, by federal law, that's a, that's a protected disclosure. And in the FBI, you can make a protected disclosure to your supervisor all the way on up to the director. But every time I did anything like that, nothing ever happened. It was always like, yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing it to our attention. Sometimes it was even, you bring up some really good points here. Um, points that I've not heard anybody else talk about. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my staff or whatever, and I'll get back to you. But nothing ever happened. So eventually it got to a point where I was like, okay, I have to, Congress is the next step because nobody, nobody's doing anything about it. And then of course they like to malign me for not going through my chain of command. And it's like, well, that's where it started. Mm. And then once they never did anything about any of the stuff I would bring up, then what else do you want me to do? And in my deposition, they were like, cause there's like a whole number of places you can go. FBI, OPR, FBI, inspection division, which I did make a protected disclosure to them. And I actually think that protected disclosure in large part is what got me here. Mm. Um, which we, we could talk about that a little bit if you want. I haven't talked about that yet. Go but, ahead. Uh, like anywhere. So that one, um, we, so right before I transferred, we were, uh, Kansas city was under an inspection. So in, in the FBI, there's a whole division called inspection division and every field office goes under an inspection period like every other year or every three years or something like that. And being on an inspection team is like one of those widgets that you, or it's like a feather in your cap. If you do inspection for 12 months or 18 months and you can write to, oh, I did this many inspections at these field offices, it's gonna help you get promoted. So all the type of people who wanna promote in the FBI, at some point in time, they very likely were part of inspection. And then they they rise up together and all get promoted together and then start climbing over each other's backs to get the next promotion and, you know, things of that nature. So Kansas City is under this inspection. And for whatever reason, this inspection, they say we're going to do a 100 percent interview like they're going to interview every single person in the division. So my interview happens in um, uh, mid-August, maybe no early, early August. And I, I know I'm leaving, but like, that's, I'm like, dude, I, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I don't really, I don't really care. I'll, t- I'll tell you about my experience in the division, but you know, I'm out the door. 
And then at the end of the interview, the inspector told me if anything else comes up before my transfer that he, that I think he should know that I am free to call him. So as chance would have it, well, as divinity would have it, um, something does come up like a week later, maybe uh, my supervisor comes to my desk and he has like a bunch of papers in his hand printed off and he comes up to me and he goes, Hey, uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want, uh, but I would like to ask you some questions about this. And I, right then I'm, I was like, Oh crap. He found out that I've been whistleblowing, but he didn't. So he turns like one of the papers towards me and it's a printed off email and it's mostly covered up um, because I couldn't see the to and from lines. And then it has essentially verbatim quotes attributed to me from an interview that happened like a year and a half earlier. So a year and a half earlier, the boss I, I had was a different boss. Let, I'll, I'll, let me do it this way. My boss, when I left Wichita, used to be an agent in Wichita. Uh, he transferred to Quantico. Um, I, I, I met him in Quantico. He was an instructor when I was training. Okay. So I get assigned to Wichita. Fast forward a couple years, he gets promoted to come back to Wichita, which he was really happy about because they liked, they really liked it there. And uh, so he gets promoted to be this supervisory special agent. So he comes back. Well, while he's in Quantico and I'm in Wichita, uh, there was an agent that ended up resigning on his own. So that agent tried to come back to the FBI. And uh, as part of that process, because I guess if you leave the FBI on your own, you, there's like a two year window where they might hire you back if you want to come back. So he wants to come back. And I get interviewed as part of that process because um, the FBI was trying to determine if they should hire him back. And my special agent in charge, who was a different, you know, he ended up leaving uh, too, but he, and this is like during COVID. I remember, I remember it. I was in our bedroom in our Kansas house. He calls me and he says, Hey, you know, I need to ask you some questions about this guy who resigned. He's, he's trying to come back and we're, you know, whatever. And he said, please be candid because this interview is only between you, me and HR. Like nobody else is going to see. And a year and a half later, you'll so be I confronted with it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh, I was candid and this is kind of funny, like thinking about it now. So eventually when my, when my boss gets promoted and comes back to Wichita, I learned that he was like really good friends with this agent who resigned. Like even as far as I know, even to today, because when I was working in Wichita, my boss would often say, oh yeah, I hung out with that guy. Like, like they are good friends. And so now my boss learns that I, and I don't know how he learned this. But I do know that it's a policy violation to be digging into personnel records on your friend. So this happens. It's very awkward. And I'm thinking like, you know, and I, I was initially at a point I'm like, well, whatever, I'm leaving. I don't really care. But I couldn't get over the fact that if I wasn't leaving, You'd it would be a there. very difficult. Exactly. Yeah. And then on top of it, I was like, you know, if it was a different type of person, it would probably be more difficult for them to 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 have to deal with this type of environment with their boss so that is really what pushed me over the top to call this inspection guy back and i call him back and i tell him what happens and he's like huh that is not good he goes i don't really know what to do about that and i told him too i was like i know that this is a policy violation where he where my boss could be opr'd for this and the guy's like, okay, I'm going to bring this to the inspection head and I'll be back in touch with you. Like a week later, he calls me and he says, hey, it's out of my hands. Uh, the inspection head is going to take care of it, but I'm going to send you an email to memorialize that this that I talked to you and that this happened, which he did do, but it, he sent it on our classified server, even though the email itself is unclassified. So I don't have that email, but, um, so he, yeah, so I don't know what happens. I imagine that at, in some way, shape or form, it had to have been brought up to my, well, maybe not because 
Maybe they said whatever. You were ruffling too many feathers with your integrity is what was happening. Like you're poking in places like as simple as just violating a policy. I mean, people do that all the time, Garrett. You were just too good. (laughs) Like that's what it is. I mean, honestly, like you were too good. And that's what that's what did it. You were too by the book, do things the right way. Even down to, you know, just a stupid policy violation that doesn't really, you know, just internal. It has nothing to do with anybody. You see what I'm saying? Like, that had to have been what it was. So now you get suspended. You can't work anywhere else until they allow you to. You're not making any money. You're sitting there. You don't want to go public or can't go public. And how do you end up meeting Kyle? We We have six minutes, but I want to get to what has happened between then and now. How do you end up meeting Kyle and Steve and... So this is interesting too, and this is another one of those things where I'm like, oh, this is, God has established this path. And I met Kyle, well, I never even met him. I met him now, but um, we were put together, we were linked together by a different FBI employee into this group uh, that Kyle had created just on a a digital messaging platform. And um, that's how I first met him. And so I start posting stuff in this group that he had created and at somewhere along the way, I think he realized like, oh, this guy might be a kindred spirit. So we start messaging on the side and and that's really how. And then, you know, where we message each other internally, on, you know, at work and stuff like that. And so we just stay in touch um, from probably like October. Uh, yeah, October or November, maybe. Yeah, I would say October of 2021 is when that started. And so then I've stayed in touch with him ever since and then once he got suspended like i still stayed in touch with him as well then and but yeah it's been like a rocket ship of craziness uh since since all those times can i know you, that was very brief but i don't it's okay can you tell us how many people are in that group i never asked him uh like 300 that's 300 some still inside some not right correct yeah Everybody be 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 optimistic, at least in, in that what you guys are doing. That, yeah. That's and incredible. I would hope I, I would imagine there are more people like that, too. But they just because it's all word of mouth, you know, it's all word of mouth how this group and, and whatever. And, you know, a lot of the times it's just memes and links to news articles and stuff. But, you know, it's yeah, that so that's how our paths first crossed. And then and now it's, you know. If it wasn't for him and Steve, I don't know. I don't know where I'd be because I probably would have just resigned and just become a cop again or something because they they get you in this purgatory like state and it's like what do you what do you do? It's demoralizing, like how, right? How do you go on? Well, very, you said um, you you were saying in the beginning that you know most people about uh, most people judging you for um well you're actually just um addressing the people who judge for not wanting to have anybody else go through what you went through. And uh, the real issue here is that most people just speculate on the internet. And until a person actually has every aspect of their lives destroyed, they just don't understand why someone else won't walk the walk for them. And it's, uh, it's, it's a tough situation to give people that perspective. But I have to imagine that, uh, especially in the last couple of days, uh, you had some thoughts when you saw James Comey on MSNBC, a guy who should be in jail for multiple lifetimes, um, just uh, kind of all shucksing his way through another um, another report that showed what kind of a criminal operation he was at the head of. And instead, he's selling another book and acting like a right. Boy Scout again. And it's just like th- th- that. It's very hard to go up against a reality creating machine like that and, and get any kind of headway. Yeah, it's it's so difficult. And then especially like when you've taken a peek behind the curtain and then you see somebody up there like that grandstanding as if they are the pinnacle of the FBI's integrity, when in actuality they were essentially engaging in a coup against the president. And it's like, <laughs> no, you're the opposite of what we should have in the FBI. So you you guys, I think Kyle just tweeted yesterday that he's sending a check because everybody out yeah. here supports you guys so much. And I'm so glad we yeah. got here. Like, 
I, the only thing when we were talking behind the scenes and I said to you, I can, the only thing that I can equate this to that I can even put myself in your shoes is when I had my house fire and everybody stepped in to hold me up and support me because the Coffee and COVID newsletter did a multiplier on the fundraiser. And did is it just, he just put out, let me look it up what, what it is. And I want everybody to keep giving because this money is going to help these guys survive. But he tweets too much. The ch- <laughs> <laughs> Kyle is a tweeter. He does tweet a lot. He does. Oh, the check here, it says $255,199 is yeah. coming to yeah, you. So and that, that's... Uh-huh. Yeah, it's incredible. And you, when you texted me last Wednesday, I think, yeah. about the multiplier. And yeah, that... I, I did. I was crying. I was crying. And... Uh, because the 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 it's been such a such a journey, and you know, I I, I failed along the way, uh, and I'm ashamed of some of the things I've thought or or said or done because in my human sinfulness and fear, it was more despondency, like Lord, like what the heck, and uh, you know, I got to points where there was unrighteous anger. I know that I have some righteous anger as well, but. Um, it's been a difficult time, and so uh, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And that, now there is a little a little hang up with the the Give Send Go funds a tax issue that we're trying to uh, rectify. I was going to say something him about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's going to take the hit on all of that. He's going to take the hit on all of that. Yeah, so I think he's he's working with Give Send Go and some other places to try to figure out. Uh, the best, the best way, because, and it, it, it actually is. It, it, it's another bright point on the overall tyranny uh, uh, that's that we see from our government. And I know people might scoff at that word, but tyranny, the, the, the definition is an arbitrary or unrestrained use of power. And if this isn't arbitrary and unrestrained, I don't know what is. You have a bunch of people giving donations, um, but since the donations weren't going directly to my bank account or Marcus's bank account then Kyle's going to be taxed at 34% on that. It doesn't even make, doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. So who knows? We'll see what happens. Hopefully we can figure out a way, but Hey, even if it was taxed, uh, any amount of money is better than $0, which is what the FBI has been paying me for a long time now. You should be able to live now and re- and take a br- yeah. breather and just breathe, right? Just take a breath. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to, uh, you know, we, we, the American people are amazing and we have been asking for people like you to be brave and do this. I've been begging every day, where the hell are they? There's gotta be good people and here you are. And yeah. I mean, that we all have to support each other. We have to, if we're, we have any have to. chance. And I mean, we could probably have talked for another hour, Garrett, about all of that you have oh, done. For sure. I was, and I want you to come back if you can. I, I was unaware yeah. that you had been doing this for so long, God bless you. Thank you. Seriously. Thanks, Thanks Tracy. Yeah. Frank, you got any questions to end this off? I hate to end it this way. Where can people f- find you? You don't have anything, Frank? No, no, no. I, I, this, I'm just taking his story in for the first time today, so I'm really appreciative of him being here. Garrett, you're amazing. Yeah. You are. Thanks. Thanks and for I- having me. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, but, I, but thank you. I'm just, yeah, I just try to do the right thing. Uh, one of my field training officers from the police department, she texted me the other day and she said, um, something like, you know, uh, ever since I first knew you, like you always just did the right thing. And I thought, huh, like I take that as a compliment and it's like, you know, I, I don't always, I, I'm a, I'm sinful and I make the wrong decision here and there or, or whatever. But when it came to my time in law enforcement, I certainly always tried to really decipher what was right and, and do that. But um, uh, I responded back to her and I said something like, you know, doing the right thing certainly makes the decision process easy because you only have one choice and it's very easy to make them. Now, in the aftermath, it's very difficult, but you nobody ever would have thought a law enforcement officer trying to do the right thing would end up like this, but, but here we are. Well, if... People want to follow you. Is there any one particular place that, that you're sending them or are you just kind of doing things as they come and you're still your little, you know, private self because that's yeah. how you are? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so I would like to, everything's restricted right now, and that's just at the advice of uh, my attorneys, which on one hand, it's weird because um, they, 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 they're okay with me speaking publicly, but they said, keep your, keep your socials restricted for now. And I'm not entirely certain as to why, but I know that they think a lot more strategically and long-term and are, are much more detached. Uh, I shouldn't say that they aren't detached. This is personal for them too. They've told me, so I'm very grateful for, for everything they're doing and have done, but I hope someday soon I'll get to unrestrict those things. It's G O B actual on truth, Instagram and Twitter. And then I also have a sub stack. It's last line, like it says on my shirt, it's uh, lastline.substack.com. That's also restricted. That's probably my favorite place. That's where I would love people to go because <laughs> I get, yeah, I write I write a lot of, I don't know, I think I've been told some of the things I write are pretty interesting. So it's kind of a mix of my faith, my story, current events, or things that have been, I've been thinking about or historical things from the FBI. Um, but yeah, it's so br- hopefully it's someday I'll, I'll be able to. You guys are Thank all you. brilliant. Thanks. You're all brilliant people. Like, that's the thing. Like, you know, Kyle and, and Steve have both written for Uncover DC. You're welcome to write for Uncover DC whenever you want because your writing is amazing. You're obviously a, a brilliant man with integrity and heart and soul. And we'll get everybody over to your Substack, and hopefully Jesse will let you open that up soon so that people can support yeah. you there. God bless you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much, really, Garrett. Um, you guys have been listening to the Dark Delight podcast with... Frankie Val on the drums and... Beans, you can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2.30 Eastern Time on TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Rumble, Getter, and Twitter. No show Friday. I will be going down to Austin, Texas to do the red carpet premiere of the Plandemic 3 movie. Um, But we'll be back here next Monday. So God bless you guys. And thanks again, Garrett. Later.